Take your Bible, turn over to the book of Psalm, chapter 133, verse 1. Psalm 133, verse 1. We'll begin there. And Today, uh, obviously, is Sunday. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. And uh, we celebrate the sacrifice of our soldiers and troops through the years. Those that paid the ultimate price with their very lives that we may experience the freedoms that we now possess. Those freedoms are fragile. They come at a great cost, however. No freedom has ever been bought without blood. And the reality is, is that if it's, we're going to continue in our freedoms, we need to fight. Continue to fight for our freedoms. Whether it be abroad or whether it be even in our own country and nation, our freedoms are important to us. People literally gave their lives so that we could exercise our freedoms to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we certainly wouldn't want to let them down. We'll continue to pray for our troops as they are abroad and as they are even within our own uh, country training and preparing for what could be another battle ahead. And the world we live in today, there's no guarantees, is there? I mean, today, we war could break out somewhere. and It seems that our troops are uh, some of the best in the world, and as a result of that, they seem to end up around the world. So you'll be praying for our troops and their families. But uh, we certainly are grateful for the sacrifice of men and women through the years that have given their life for our country and for our freedoms. Psalm 133 today, I, I'm not going to speak on that topic, but I do want to continue dealing with our relationship study. I've been gone, like I said, I missed last week. As a result of that, um, I, I don't want to... And the week before, we, we spoke specifically on mothers and Mother's Day issues. And so I want to get back to this because I do believe it's very imperative and important in each of our lives. Relationships, of course, are so paramount, so important that without them, we truly don't experience any joy, any real uh, purpose in life. Relationships are uh, is important, if not more, than anything else in life. There is nothing more important. Things are just that, things. But people are really what life's about. And uh, again, there's a mountain of growing evidence that identifies healthy and satisfying relationships with as being one of the most important factors in joy and happiness in the lives of others. Healthiness even. Even our very health. Um, I think we're living in a very disjointed society. As much as we are in contact, as much as we have information at our disposal, uh, we're connected, but we're lonelier than ever. Research states that. It's showing us that. Although we have Facebook and we have all of these means of contacting people, of staying in touch, it's so superficial. There's no depth to our relationships today. As a result of that, there's very little satisfaction. And we find that when it's all said and done, that God is very concerned about our ability to establish and maintain good relationships. It begins with our relationship with Him. If we fail to have the right kind of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then every other relationship is a little bit off base. Amen. Everything begins with that first and most important relationship. And so everything is built upon a relationship in our life. It begins with a relationship with Christ, and, it begins, and then it continues with our relationship with others. And so we want to make sure that we are in a position to experience strong and stable and very satisfying relationships. How do we go about that? 
Well, we noted some tools, and now we've been talking about some techniques along the way. And we said that, basically, relationships uh, or being good at them is an art. And Webster defines an art as skill or dexterity or the power of performing certain actions acquired by experience, study, or observation. We said that there was no better example of someone that was adept at relationships than the Lord himself while on earth. And we want to use Christ as an example. We have through this series called The Art of Others. Today I want to specifically deal with confrontation. How to do it effectively. How to confront situations or circumstances or people effectively. And so we want to try to do that in these next few moments uh, this morning. So let's read our text verse. In chapter 133, verse 1, the Bible says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Father, we come to you today. We're asking you, Lord, to speak to our hearts. May you allow something to be said, Lord, that will encourage folks in this auditorium today that will equip them, Lord, for the task at hand. We want satisfying, strong relationships. Father, we want to be able to engage in conversation and fellowship, Father, that brings honor to you and brings joy to our hearts. We live in a difficult age. Although people are more connected than ever, Lord, it seems that there's so little joy and that relationships are so strained. Help us, Lord, to be better equipped to have the kind of relationships that will bring glory to you. Now help each of us today and may we first and foremost ensure that our relationship with you is right. Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So let's talk just a little bit about this issue of confrontation. Confrontation is necessary at times. We've already noted that. But it is also, it can be a very uncomfortable thing. As I mentioned to you already, I'm not a confrontational type of person. I don't enjoy confrontation. It's not something that I thrive on. I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I, I go down to Mexico where they're bartering. In reality, I don't like to barter. What's the lowest price? I don't want to have to dicker. You know what I mean? Now, them, that's an insult, at least where the places I were. They're like, what are you talking about? You don't want to, that's, you know, you, you, you know, you dissing me, you, you know, dogging me out. I mean, I, I, no, I just don't like to, I don't like confrontation. I don't like to do that. I mentioned I don't like to, I don't like to call and order pizza. I, I don't like to do that. You, you say, why not? It's no big deal. It is to me because what if they're busy? I'm putting someone out. To me, it's almost confrontational. I feel like I'm just, I just, I get, I don't like those feelings. I don't like to have to talk to somebody and tell them things they don't want to hear. I don't enjoy that. I don't take pleasure in that. I don't even like to even think about it. I, my stomach gets in knots. Hours, days, weeks before I have to confront people usually. I hate confrontation. 
However, confrontation at times is absolutely necessary. It has to take place. So if we're going to have to confront people, if we're going to have to deal with situations, circumstances, or individuals, and maybe their attitude or actions, how can we do that effectively? How can we do that in a way that doesn't leave everything a wasteland in the end? I believe too often it seems that we enter into a confrontational situation or it may not even be a real heated situation, but it ends up being total destruction. And and that's not what God wants. That doesn't honor the Lord. And and today what I want to try to do is just talk to you about some things. I'm going to, I guess, um, share some essentials concerning this aspect of confrontation. First of all, we need to confront others humbly. Now today is a little different. We're not going to be preaching so much. I want to teach you some things today. But we need to confront others humbly. See, we need to remind ourselves that we're not perfect either. That's a big factor. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, can you turn there with me, please? Romans, chapter 3, verse 10, if you have your Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Romans. You'll find it right there after those. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. There you go, okay. Romans chapter 3, here we go, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way, they're together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, if I'm reading that, and, and if what I'm reading is true, then it includes me today. That passage includes me. And what I've said already about confrontation is that we need to confront others humbly, remembering, remembering, reminding even ourselves that we're not perfect either. The Bible makes it perfectly clear that I'm not perfect. And neither are you. Well, that's a very important factor when it comes to confronting a situation or especially a person. That none of us are perfect. The Bible basically says that all mankind is flawed in this flesh. And thank God for His saving grace that supernaturally transforms us. I'll tell you what, if you confront somebody about a situation, you'll often find that they're very defensive. People are by nature defensive. I'm not one of those people that goes around saying, let me offer you a little bit of constructive criticism. See, to me, there's no such thing as constructive criticism. It is either criticism or it is not. Now, again, I'm not trying to... Listen, I need criticism from time to time. And so do you. It's good for us to hear things in areas of our life maybe that we're not measuring up or the things that we're not doing well or things that need some change in our life. There's nothing wrong with that. Criticism is not a bad word. We take it poorly often, but it's not a bad thing. It can be a very positive thing in our life. But please don't tell me you're going to offer me some constructive criticism like I'm supposed to smile like you're giving me a piece of candy. When you kick me in the gut... I don't smile. And let me tell you something. 
Criticism's hard to handle. And if we go to people often with, with this issue of confrontation, sometimes it sounds like criticism. Don't be surprised when people become a little defensive. Try to put yourself in someone's position, in, in their position. And, and ask yourself, how would I feel? In some cases, people that often, if they are legitimately, say, in sin or doing something that is contrary to Scripture, they're often very self, uh, they're, 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 they're very, um, well, let me just put it this way. Who made you judge? You ever run into that? You know what I'm saying. I mean, you can talk to somebody that's legitimately a drunkard. They're not even taking care of their family. They're spending all the money on booze instead of taking care of their children and providing for their wife and their home. And you go to them and say, listen, I'm just concerned because I'm concerned you're drinking too much. Who, who made you judge? Oh, when did you become God? You need to expect that. By the same token, don't go to them like you're perfect. Because you're not, and neither am I. Don't go to them as though I've never done anything wrong. What is your problem? No, you need to confront people humbly, recognizing that although your sin may not be their sin, it is still sin nonetheless. That helps a lot when people at least feel that. It is natural in the flesh to kind of dismiss, dismiss certain confrontation as being pompous or arrogant or self-righteous. I've not always been perfect. I know you think I have. I know. I know you do. Let me dispel that right now. I've not always been perfect. I know. Breaks your heart, doesn't it? And when I've been confronted, man, I'm telling you what, it's easy to, to, to get defensive. So don't, don't expect others. However, it sure makes a big difference when someone comes to me humbly versus comes to me all pompous like, you know, what's your problem? There's a big difference. So confrontation is going to take place. It has to at times. But make sure when you confront others, you do it humbly. See, you and I need to realize that in a sense, we need to be above reproach when we go to people. Look over at Matthew chapter 7. This is a misunderstood verse. But let's re- look at it here. Matthew chapter 7. The first book in the New Testament. Chapter 7, verse 4 through 5. Again, as I said, this is misunderstood. I, I, I don't know. I don't even want to talk about it. Okay, moving on. Matthew chapter 7, verse 4 through 5. Notice what the Bible says. It says, Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the moat out of thine eye, And behold, a beam is in thine own eye. (laughs) The visual is great, isn't it? You know, you just think about this for a second. A little moat, okay? Very, very, really small thing. You know, kind of, ah, oh, I got something in my eye. Ah, ah. Oh, oh, there it is. But the guy telling me I got that little thing in my eye, he's got this four by four, eight foot long, sticking out of his eye. He's walking around holding it up. Excuse me, you have a moat in your eye. You have a moat in your eye. How in the world can you see that with that beam sticking out of your face? How's that possible? That's what it's talking about. Okay? (laughs) I love the visual. He goes on to say, Let me pull out the moat out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite! 
First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. It's amazing. You ever want good advice? Go to a bar. It's amazing the great advice you'll get at a bar. Everybody's got an answer. But no one has the solution. I'm not trying to be mean or negative. I'm just saying, how in the world does someone that's sitting in a bar, how can they tell you how to fix your problem when you're sitting at the same place? So you've got a drinking problem, bro. Oh, really? I do? How do you know that? Get that beam. You just hit me in the head with it when you turned your head. Do you understand where I'm going with that? Now, listen, all I'm saying is, is that sometimes we've got to realize that if we're going to confront people properly, we better make sure there's no beams in our eyes. you got an attitude problem, sister. Oh, really? Like you don't? How in the world do you expect to confront somebody when you have a problem that's glaring in your life? I mean, a big problem. I'm not talking about just the normal stuff. We all got issues in our life. Everybody does. That's what I'm talking about. Be humble about it. But wait a second. Before we can really go address an issue in someone's life, we need to make sure that the glaring problems that exist in our life have been dealt with. That's all. He says, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. See, the passage doesn't discourage someone from helping a brother or sister see better. But it does demand that one addresses their own faults first. This mentality or attitude, you know, don't judge me, you have no right to judge me. What are you talking about? I'm over here to help you. I'm not judging you. Just because you were, you know, falling around, walling around in your own vomit the other night because you were drunk. And I say to you, you got a problem with alcohol. Don't tell me I'm judging you. You're the one that was walling around in it. Oh, that's what he's saying. We used to preach like that 50 years ago. We stopped doing that. We stopped talking like that because it's not very kind or nice, right? Wait a second. I'm about sick and tired of men not taking care of their children, but telling people, you don't judge me. What are you talking about? I don't, I'm a, it's okay. I can have kids. Why do I have to pay for them? Aren't you tired of that junk? Aren't you tired of women that will have children and then abandon them? Wait a second. Is it judging them to say that they're not a good mother because they abandon their children? That's not judging. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I've got to be careful, don't I? Because that's not very politically correct today. I just think that the Bible's still true and that God still has a standard of character that you and I as believers ought to live up to. And when we don't live up to it, we ought to expect someone that loves us and cares enough about us to come and confront us. Instead of taking it the way it's taken often, and it will be taken that way at times, I understand that. Still, that's not what this judge or lest ye be judged thing is about. It has nothing to do with that. We are to confront at times, and we ought to confront. And if you've got a child, or you've got a, a grandkid, or you've got a husband, or a wife, or a family member, or a friend that's going in the wrong direction, God help us if we don't do something about it. Try to help them, but hold on. Make sure that you confront them humbly. Don't go haughty. Don't go arrogantly. Don't go as if you've never made a mistake, because that's just not true. 
So the passage doesn't discourage confrontation. It doesn't say that we don't have a right to address issues. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. What he's basically saying is this. If someone's going to say that you're a hypocrite, let it make sure it's false. That's all. Clean up your life. Get in a position where you can instruct, encourage, and impact and influence lives. Be in that position. There are going to be those that will falsely accuse you of being a hypocrite. It's going to happen. That's what confrontation brings sometimes. It's just life. But please, don't let that beam be sticking out. Make sure that in the end, when they walk away in the end, and after time, they look back and go, you know what? There was nothing wrong with them. I was the one that was messed up. Let them be ashamed when they falsely accuse you for good. So, go humbly, however. That's the key. Approach people with a humble attitude. Number two, confront others sincerely. Now, this one's big. This one's big. What I mean by that is, to confront others sincerely, review your motives and ensure they are pure. You say, well, I still don't understand. Well, let me keep going here then. Ensure your goal is to help and not hurt the person being confronted. And hold on. Your boldness, now listen to this, your boldness cannot be motivated by envy, anger, revenge, resentment, or even pride. It needs to be completely unselfish. You get nothing out of the deal. You understand what I'm saying? You you, you can't confront somebody about an issue, especially if it's a delicate issue, especially if it's a personal issue, and they believe that the only reason you're doing it is to benefit you. That don't work. You've got to make sure that you are confronting them sincerely, that your motives are pure, that it is genuinely care for their well-being that you're there for. In Ephesians 4.15, the Bible says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Love envieth not. There's no, there's no motivation. Love just simply does because it loves. So let me ask you this question. When you confront someone, the real question, this is what it should be. Is your goal to win the point or win the person? You know what I'm talking about with confrontation. Sometimes we confront people because we want to win. I'm right. I'm going to prove I'm right. That's what you start confronting people with that attitude for that purpose and that reason. You're going to have a real problem on your hands before it's over with. See, we wonder why things turn into conflict, why they turn into World War Three. Because a lot of times, what happens is, if we're not careful, we don't go as humbly as we ought to. We go because we want to prove we're right. 
And somebody, you know what? Nobody likes to be told they're wrong by somebody that wants to be proven they're right. You know what I mean? Preacher, you said this, and you're wrong about this, and you got that. I'm, and the first time, I'm like, you know what? I'm just like anybody else. As they say in the South, I start bowing up. Because I, I know you're not coming to me because you're genuinely concerned about me or about the church or about the situation. you just about you being right. And I don't like that. You know what? You're the same way. You're the same way. We're just human. That's the way it is. So is our goal to win the point or win the person? Make sure your intentions are just and that they are the real winners in the end. They're the winner in the end. A lot of people are very skeptical of our advice or even our admonitions. They'll question our motives, don't they? Why are you approaching me? Why are you saying that? How come you can say that? Why would you say that about me? They may say in their heart, why do you really want me to change? I mean, what's in it for you? You know what I mean? Jesus, he went about preaching the gospel, and he went about preaching what's called repentance. I mean, what he's saying, the Bible says in Mark 1, 14 and 15, referring to Christ, it says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And he's going to people and he's saying, Repent! And we say, What's repentance? Well, it involves a change of mind towards sin and a change in one's life reflecting that change. I mean, something changes here. I'm going this direction and I repent. I'm going that direction. It affects my mind, ultimately affecting my actions. True repentance doesn't stop with only a mind change. And Jesus is going to these people and saying basically, you're not living right, you're not doing right, you're not going in the right direction, and you're going to end up in a place called hell if you don't turn from your ways. To me, He says. What do you mean to you? I'm trying to do the best I can to live a good life. I'm trying to let the good outweigh the bad. I'm trying to be everything I'm supposed to be. I'm trying to keep that law. I'm trying to fulfill it the best I know how. I'm trying to be a good daddy, a good mama. I'm trying to be a good citizen. That's not enough. You need to turn to me. Away from your own self, and your own ability, and your own efforts. To me only. Man, some of those people I'm sure were having a hard time with that message. When you begin to start telling people that they need to change their ways, they're quick to evaluate your motives. <laughs> they want to know why. Why? And you know what? They are prone. Listen, I, I've been there. I understand this a little bit. You're prone to believe that people are selfish and self-serving and it's really not in your best interest. It's more about them. That's just what you believe sometimes. Oh, you want me to get saved so that I can go to your church and I can support your agenda. Hey, don't think that doesn't happen. Oh, you want me to change my life so that your life is easier. Easier. 
A wife confronts her husband. A husband confronts his wife in an area. Oh, well, that's just because if I'll do that, it'll make your life better. You don't get too far if they honestly believe that the only reason you're confronting them is because it's going to benefit you. You don't get too far with people that way. Jesus, he goes on now. He's, he's telling them, repent. Turn from your ways. Get some things right in your life. Turn to me. Hold on. In Luke, he gives us the reason. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. This isn't about just me right now, people, he says. It's about you. My message is to spare you heartache. My message is to spare you hurt. My message is to spare you hell. I'm not angry at your sin simply because it hurts me. I'm more angry at your sin because what it's going to do to you, and I love you that much, that I don't want to see you suffer. But he thinks God's like in this business of making us miserable. Don't do this and don't do that and don't do that. Well, how's come he forbade that one fruit in the garden? Well, how's come he let him have all the others anyway? Well, that's the only thing we can do. Well, I just want that thing I'm not allowed to have. God's saying, I don't want you not to have it because I want to prove that I'm in authority over you and you will obey me. That's not why he does it. He does it because he's concerned. The moment you take of that fruit that's forbidden, your life suffers. Your future suffers. And the God of heaven that created you and loves you so desperately says, I don't want you to hurt. I don't want no harm to come to your life. I want you to prosper. And we somehow, if we're not careful, think that God has ulterior motives. But God's motives are always us first. And the moment you confront somebody, if it is for any other reason than them, you could potentially have some real issues. They have to be convinced that you're confronting them out of sincerity. Sheer concern for their well-being. Otherwise, you're going to have a battle on your hands probably. And even then it can be a battle. What's the motive of your message today? You know, that area that you're struggling with, that person that you're conflicting with. I mean, is it self-serving? Is it selfish? Or is it pure? So you beg your wife to change so that your life will be better, sir? Or that theirs will be better? What about it, ma'am? I mean, do you desire for your husband to surrender in a certain area so that for the well-being of him... Or is it for your well-being? No, it's for my kids. Well, wait a second. That's still self-serving. What about him? See, he's asking, everybody's saying, why is it that I, I should change? Everybody, for this person, that person. People don't change for others. They change for God and themselves. The true change never takes place till I decide to change on behalf of God. You change for me, you may give up on that for after a while. It has to be something you choose to do, realizing that it's in your best interest and that it pleases God. Just because it pleases the pastor or pleases my wife or pleases my husband, or not my husband, but it pleases uh, uh, somebody I know, that's not going to keep me where I need to be. 
Before you confront a person or a problem, review your motives and ensure they're pure. Why do you want your kids to obey the rules? It ought to be. But let's face it, Mom and Dad, if we're not careful, we want them to obey the rules because it makes our life easier. You know, because it doesn't, we're, we don't get embarrassed out in public, you know, if they're acting right. Now listen, I, I don't think any child should embarrass their parents in public. You don't have to agree with me. I don't care what Dr. Spock or anybody of these other doctors say. You embarrass me in public, you better watch out. That's all I'm saying about my kids. You're going to act a fool in public? I'm probably act the same fool. I'm going to tear into that thing. More ways than one. Now listen to me. On the other hand, let me tell you this. Why do I really want my kids to obey me? Why do I want them to sit when they're at a restaurant and be still like they're supposed to and talk at a normal level and be respectful to authority and obey their teachers at school? Why do I want them to, to, to show the kind of respect that they ought to to others in authority? Because in the long run, that benefits them. Not just because, well, if they didn't do that, you'd think I was a bad preacher. If they didn't obey the Lord, if they didn't do all the things in the church that everybody else is doing, if they're not just perfect little kids, if they don't just do this and do that, then all of a sudden, huh, you know, it'll make you look bad. If I think that, if that's why, my kids will see through that. They'll see through that. And they'll know the only reason I want them to obey is because of me and not really for their best interests. And I'm telling you what, that creates a lot of problems in our lives. Before you confront somebody about an issue, you better make sure that it's their best interest at heart, not some benefit for you. It may benefit you, don't misunderstand me, but that can't be the motivating factor in confrontation. It has to be in their best interest. And I have to close with this one. I have others, but we'll stop with this next one. Confront them realistically. You say, what do you mean realistically? Remember that you can't change anyone. Can't change anyone. Genesis chapter 2 verse 17 says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God, God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Right? He says to him, you can eat of every tree of the garden except the one in the midst. The day that thou eatest of that tree, thou shalt surely die. They did too, by the way. They died spiritually. And ultimately they died physically. Isn't that amazing? God created Adam. In a sense, he birthed him. The best parent on earth had a child that chose to sin. Well, if you just do everything right, they wouldn't turn out like that. God, you obviously weren't a good parent. Perfect environment. Perfect situation. Gave them everything they needed to succeed. Yet they chose to sin. Listen to me. If you've got ten kids and every single one of them turns out to be a drunkard, something's wrong. But don't tell me for a minute that a kid can't make a bad decision and that that bad decision reflects so poorly on the parent that that makes them bad parents. 
Come on now, let's just be honest here. I'm not, listen, I, I'm not saying that our kids have to turn out bad. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't flip that around. I didn't say that. But I'm telling you this. Don't you dare look on another parent that's had maybe a child that's taken a bad direction. And, oh, their, their life's work is good. You can see the evidence of that life work. And they've had a child maybe make a bad decision, go a certain direction, go off on the deep end, so to speak. And all of a sudden now, oh, look at them. Obviously, I wonder what's going on in their home. Obviously, they're not for real. Are you kidding me? Well, what happened to that first one? Confront them humbly. I mean, where's the humility at here? Are we saying our children don't have free wills? That they can't make their own choices? All I'm saying is, Adam made the wrong decision and there was no better daddy than God ever. So here's my point again. You can't change anyone. And neither can I. Why? Because people make their own decisions. It's just a simple fact of life. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, we read about a man that made his own decision. He said, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites whose land in, uh, ye dwell. But as for me, as for me and my house, it started with him though, as for me, we will serve the Lord. Made a decision. I can't make you do anything. And the truth is, you can't make me do anything. Boy, you know what? That's a liberating thought when you enter into confrontation. Too often, we enter into confrontation thinking that, oh, I have to change this person. Before I get done with them, they're going to change. You can't do that. You can't change them. I don't care if you love them with all your heart. It doesn't matter if they're your, your husband, your wife, your children. It doesn't matter if you've invested your whole life in them. In the end, they make the decision. When you confront somebody, realize that you are not responsible for their decisions. That's liberating. Sometimes we deal with people and we somehow think just because we shared this information, just because we brought this tremendous truth to light in their life, that they ought to just change their course and direction overnight, immediately. Oh, thank you so much. I would never known that if you wouldn't have shared that with me. Don't be, be a little realistic about some things. First of all, people choose to change when they choose to change. And second, people don't always change overnight. We can try to convince and even control at times. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You have to control your kids sometimes. But you cannot change anyone. Can't do it. Just can't do it. I read about a little boy who was rather rambunctious. I've shared this before, but he was really rather hyper. He was kind of crazy, and he wouldn't settle down. And 
He just kept running round and round and round. And his mother was just trying to concentrate. She was trying so hard to focus. And she couldn't, no matter what she did, just could not stay focused because this kid was kept running around and around. And finally she raised her voice and said, Johnny, sit down. And Johnny went over to the chair and he sat down. <laughs> and his mama went, oh, finally. She started to focus back on what she was working on. And little Johnny said, Mama, what, Johnny? I may be sitting in this chair, but in my mind I'm running all around this room. <laughs> you want to know something? She may have been able to control him, but she couldn't change him. You know what? That's true about all of us, isn't it? I just when we talk about confrontation, sometimes we take so we take it so personal. People don't follow everything we say, do exactly as we say. But the truth is, we can't change them, and we're not responsible to change people. That's a liberating thought when you confront people. It doesn't make you feel better if you're confronting them about a, a dryer or a washer that was received in bad condition, and you're trying to convince them to take it back and replace it. But realize, at least. Just because you bring it up doesn't mean that everyone has to jump. I don't know. I think that truth alleviates a tremendous amount of anxiety and frustration. Someone once told me this. They said, you can't want more for somebody than they want for themselves. Now listen. I beg to differ. I can want more. But all it's going to do is lead to frustration. Frustration. <laughs> Frustrate me to tears. By the way, I've been frustrated to tears a number of times in the ministry. Literal tears. Seeing the potential of people, watching them wash it down the highway of life. Frustrated to tears of what could have been, but what is not. Notice I did not say what never will be. I just said what is not. Now listen. To want more for people than what they want for themselves is frustration. So be careful. When you confront people, realize that they're, un, they're, they're not obligated to do what you tell them. Now, as, obviously, as parents, they're supposed to do what we say and all that. And then we have to, if they don't change, then we have to control and all that good stuff. But as they get older, we can't control them to some degree. It comes a point they either submit or they don't. They follow or they don't. You're going to confront people. But you have to learn that confrontation is necessary. It's often needful. But do it humbly. Do it humbly. Make sure that when you confront, not only that you do it humbly, but that you do it realistically. And ultimately, that you do it, I've got to find the note here, I just sincerely. Make sure that you do those things. It's important. I, I think sometimes, we didn't get to it, and we'll talk about it maybe later, but we're expecting God sometimes to blow a horn or to shout at us or to scream at us. Do you know that most people grow up in environments where people scream at them to get them to change? It's not rational. It's just, it's just frustration usually. I'm concerned that even amongst believers today, 
or unbelievers, I should say, more than anything. There are people that are waiting for God to scream at them before they'll listen. They've been so conditioned that the only time that someone means business is if they hit them on the head with a bat. That they're waiting to hear this shout from heaven. They're waiting for some cataclysmic change in our universe. They're waiting to have some tremendous revelation dropped on them like a brick from heaven. Bam! Oh, wow. I'm going to tell you something. God doesn't work that way. Because God wants you to change voluntarily. God wants you to come to Him as Lord and Savior because you choose to, not because you feel you have to. I want to close with this verse in John chapter 6, verse 44. It's the last verse we'll look at. John 6, 44, and we're done. Notice what it says here. And I I want you to see this because you may be in here today and you're lost. And you're going, you know, I don't feel like anybody dropped a brick on my head from heaven. I'm not hearing some, some voice in my head screaming or yelling at me. But I want you to know today that if you're sitting under earshot of this message, that the God of heaven is drawing you. That's what he says here. 644. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Now listen. Come on up here, Cody. Watch this. Ready? Cody! Come to Christ now! You come to me now! You come now! Is that drawing? That ain't drawing. If you're waiting for something from heaven to be that loud, you're waiting for some brick to fall out of heaven, knock you on the noggin, wake you up to spiritual matters, it isn't going to happen, friend. God draws people. He don't shout them in. He don't scream them in. He don't even beat them in. He draws them in. I love you, Cody. I love you. Come to me. Let me save your soul. Let me save your life. Let me give you life more abundant. Come, come to me. Please come to me. He draws them. Now let me ask you something. You know God's drawing you today. If you're lost. You know it. You feel him drawn. You don't you may not hear a loud shout. But you feel the draw. You feel that I know I need to move. I should do something about the Christ in my life. I've neglected the Lord. I've lived my own way. I've done my own thing. He does love me. He died for me on Calvary. He paid for my sin. He loved me so much that He gave Himself in my place. I know He died for me. He's drawing you. Don't wait for a shout because you'll never hear it. The next shout you'll hear will be the last call. Too bad it'll be over. You won't get a chance. You better settle it now. You're saved today. Listen, 
God will use circumstances in your life to get your attention. But normally, you have to slow down long enough to hear Him drawing you back. Will you listen to His voice today? Will you quiet your spirit long enough to hear Him drawing you? Because He is. He's confronting you. But He's not going to blast you out of the water. He wants you to respond willingly. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time together. We ask, Lord, that you'd meet needs in our lives. Father, there may be those in our crowd amidst us today that are lost without Christ, that don't know for sure if they died, they'd even go to heaven. But, Lord, you, you are drawing them. You're wooing them. You're trying to convince them to come. Lord, there's no life better than the Christian life. I know that from experience. And many in this room know that, but... Lord, sometimes it's so hard to imagine a life without certain vices or a life without certain sin in our life or certain liberties that we think are freedom that really are bondage. Help us, Lord. May that person that's lost today without Christ, that one that does not, has never, I should say, received Christ into their life, have ever allowed Him to save them from their sin, to forgive them and to give them a home in heaven and make them part of the family of God. May they listen closely And hear Him drawing them. May they be saved today and allow you to change their life for better. And Lord, may you be with the believer tonight, this morning, and help each of us, Lord, to listen to your drawing voice, bringing us closer to you, desiring us to be more intimate in our walk, in our relationship with you. Father, may we listen closely as you draw us. Well, thank you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I wonder if you died. I mean, if for some reason, God forbid, you took your last breath while sitting in that pew, do you know without a doubt you'd be in heaven today? You know for sure that you've invited Christ in your life and that when you close your eyes in death, you'll awake in the arms of Jesus? You have no doubt of this. But then again, what if you do have doubt? Let me tell you, you can settle that today. You don't have to live with doubt. You can know for sure heaven's your home because of what Christ has already done for you. Hey, listen, He's drawing you. It's not a coincidence you're here. It's not a coincidence you heard what you heard. He's drawing you. Won't you let Him change your life? Won't you allow Him to be your Savior today? Preacher, that's me. I don't know for sure if I died. I'd go to heaven. Will you pray for me? Preacher, that's me. I don't have that settled. I've never dealt with that. I've never settled it in my heart. Anybody? I've never done that. I don't have it settled. I don't know that for sure. I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. Is there something, someone, a situation that needs to be addressed in your life? Father, we come to you. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive to your leadership, your wooing, your drawing. Lord, we'll thank you. We're so glad that you don't put us on a shelf and be done with us, Lord. You work in our lives. You're so long-suffering. May we not belabor your call. May we, Father, answer it. Full-heartedly yielding, submitting, surrendering, jumping in all the way into the deep end of your love and grace and your service. Help us now, Lord, not to withhold or hold back anything of our life, but to give it all to you. As you call us, speak to our hearts, and as you draw us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.